So I want to remind you that in this 20th chapter of the Revelation so far, we've been looking at the character of the church age in light of the accomplishment of the work of redemption in Christ Jesus and by Christ Jesus. The Scriptures are clear that following the fall of man into sin, all of the events of human history and all of God's working in providence throughout history have been in order to bring the man Christ Jesus into the world and then once having brought Him into the world to destroy the works of the devil in the world. The Apostle Paul states this when he says in Galatians 4.4, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of woman. That phrase, the fullness of time, uh, points to the culmination of the times as ordained by God for the salvation of men. In other words, when the time decreed by God came to its climax, God sent the Christ into the world, born a true man from the womb of a virgin. He came into the world as a man to live a perfect life, a perfect human righteousness. This life so pleasing to God the Father that He has gladly accepted it on behalf of any and all who would come to Him and place their faith in Christ. He came in human form to die a physical human death suffering the full and complete penalty of sin so that all who trust in Him would no longer be liable to that penalty themselves. And the resurrection of the man Jesus from the dead is proof for us, encouragement for us, reminder to us that the Father has accepted all of His works on our behalf and that the Father will happily, gladly, He desires to save, to welcome anyone to Him who will come to Him for salvation through that work of Christ. It's so, so pleasing to the Father. Such a delight to the Father what Christ has offered. And that, that first and foremost, is the devi- defining character trait of the present age that we live in. We live after the coming of the fullness of time. The Christ has come. Christ has finished the objective work of our salvation. It's completed. There's no more to add to it. Now that doesn't mean that time has found its end. Obviously, we're still here. What it does mean is that the rest of history beginning and flowing out of the the work of Christ is is to be viewed as a working out and, and applying of what Christ has done among the inhabitants of the earth. That's how we ought to view all of history following Christ's work. Now associated with all this, we've seen in this chapter so far that Christ has accomplished two very important things in His death and resurrection. I say two, that there are a few, many things really, but the things I want to draw your attention to, first and foremost, God has been vindicated. In the work of Christ, the righteousness of God is vindicated so that when God now justifies the ungodly, He's just in doing so because His justice has been satisfied. In the work of Christ. Christ done this by paying the ransom for sinners, and therefore He has rendered Satan's accusatory power null and void. He can make no accusation in God's court when God justifies the ungodly, because God has poured out His wrath upon His own Son in the place of those whom He justifies. And this also has restricted the devil's ability to carry out his war upon the church. In the language of Revelation 20, Satan is bound. That's the, the, the word that's used here. Now because that everything that I've said and the fact that I would even allude to the fact that Satan being bound is something in the past is a point of disagreement. What we did last Lord's Day was just show just that. that what, what the binding of Satan is, what it isn't. It doesn't mean that he's rendered absolutely powerless. It doesn't mean that he's dead. It doesn't mean that he's non-existent. It means that he cannot, in the language of verses 7 and 8 of Revelation 20, deceive the nations to gather them for battle. He cannot destroy or stop the church. 
He cannot do what He will do at the end of the church age. Thus, Satan is bound. He cannot stop the growth of the church. Now, we'll pick up there with the exposition and I'll read verses 2 and 3 of Revelation 20 again. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and threw him into the pit, and shut it, and sealed it over him, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer, until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Now with that phrase, any longer, we see that not only can the devil not do now what he someday will be allowed to do, but he can no longer do what he was once doing. In other words, that idea of deceiving the nations to gather them for battle is not a new scheme that he will light upon whenever he's released from the abyss at the end of the church age. His aim has always been to deceive the nations as a means to thwart the plan of God. So the phrase any longer implies that Satan was deceiving the nations. Now he's been stopped for a short time, for a time, verses 7 and 8, until at some point in the future he will be released and allowed to do it again. So something has changed in the light of the ministry of Christ culminating in His death and resurrection from what Satan was once doing to what he is now able to do. I think that seems to be the logical deduction from the words of this passage so that he might not deceive the nations any longer. Now, most of that was recap. And in closing, last Lord's Day, I asked this question. Do the Scriptures anywhere allude to the character of the world prior to Christ's coming and then insinuate some sort of change after His coming that could be associated with the deception of Satan and the binding of Satan? In other words, can we support our interpretation of these three verses from the rest of Scripture the interpretation leading us to the conclusion, Satan is bound now and has been so bound for nearly 2,000 years? And the answer is yes, and that's what I want to open up today. So here's the, the general uh, statement, the general argument that I want to try to flesh out and prove. After the flood and prior to Christ's coming... God had given no special revelation to the peoples of the world outside of the lineage of Abraham. Now, I want to qualify this with things like that we know of. And and these are not meant to be taken in any absolute sense as if we understand and know everything that was happening in all of the world. But as far as we can tell from the Scriptures, after the flood and prior to Christ's coming, God had given no special revelation to the peoples of the world outside of the lineage of Abraham. While Israel was sustained in order to bring the man Jesus into the world, the nations themselves were left in darkness. And yet, they were populated. In this darkness, they were ripe or became ripe for deception. And in their deception, they became an apt tool in the hand of the devil to stop the offspring of the woman. In Christ's coming, His ministry, death, resurrection, and ascension to power, He bound the dragon. Not by stopping all of His activity completely, but by sending His Spirit, birthing His gospel church, establishing His kingdom in the world, and ensuring that the life-giving gospel would be preached unto all nations. The point is, the binding of Satan, when we hear the language of the binding of Satan, we think of it as a a purely uh, uh, limiting and restricting act performed upon the devil. What the Bible teaches is that we should also understand it in a positive 
active work of God undoing what sin had done and what the devil was making use of, destroying the works of the devil. Let me, let me illustrate the point. Imagine that six people walk into a room barefooted. This room has no windows, no lights. It's dark. No furniture. It's an empty room. One of these six people is, has been given a handful of thumbtacks. And the door is shut. And they have been tasked with putting thumbtacks on the floor, pointing up to try to get everybody else to step on them and harm themselves. They don't know that one of the other five has also been given a flashlight. And they've been instructed, go into the room, wait 30 seconds, and turn the flashlight on. Now at that point, flipping on the flashlight would immediately limit or restrict the first person's ability to actually bring harm to the other people. Make it almost impossible. Not because they tied them up, but because the darkness which made that job easy, has been replaced with light, which makes it practically impossible. That's the picture. It's, there is a restricting, there is a limiting of the, of the devil and what he can do, but the limiting is performed by God in an active way. It's not uh, merely what God does upon the devil, but what God is also doing in the rest of the world, in and through Christ. That's the picture that the Scriptures give us, and that's what I want you to see today. So what I want to do, here's, here's sort of the, my, my approach. I'm going to look at two texts from the book of Acts. Now we could go to a lot of places. I've chosen two. One primary text, one sort of secondary supporting text. I want to look at those passages. Then I want to go to the Old Testament. I want to show you how God foretold these things. And then I want to come back to the New Testament and see how the Holy Spirit inspired authors interpreted the day in which they lived, the first century, almost 2,000 years ago. So first, two texts in the book of Acts. Again, in Christ's coming, His ministry, His death, His resurrection, ascension to power, He bound the dragon, not by stopping His activity completely, but by sending His Spirit, birthing His gospel church, establishing His kingdom, and ensuring that the life-giving gospel would go Forth would be preached into all nations. The first text is found in Acts chapter 17, and you can turn there with me. Acts chapter 17. It's helpful to remember when we read our Bibles that the bulk of what we have in our Bible after the book of Acts was written during the events of the book of Acts. The, the, the book of Acts spans a long period of time. And so we, we don't say, well, now that that's ended, and then now Paul begins to write and, and things like that. No, th- no, these things are taking place uh, synonymously, many of them. So in Acts chapter 17, Paul's in Athens, which was at that time the sort of the epicenter of Greek uh, philosophy and religion. He's addressing them. If you have headings in your Bible, Paul addresses the Areopagus there beginning in verse 22. He's uh, preaching against their clear idolatrous religiosity. And most of us know the language, as I passed along, I observed the objects of your worship. You even had an, an, an idol made to the unknown God. We, we addressed that last uh, Sunday evening, I think. Then what he does is he takes that and he uses it as an opportunity to proclaim to them the true God who is the creator, who is the life giver, who is the sovereign ruler of all things. Then in verse 29, he sort of refutes and challenges their idolatry again. He says, in essence, if God is the one who created us all and gives us all life and ordains everything, then it's utterly foolish to imagine that you would come along after God and then create an image of this God. That's, that's backwards. It doesn't work like that. And then in verse 30, notice what he says. The times of ignorance God overlooked. But now He commands all people everywhere to repent. Because He has fixed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom He has appointed... And of this He has given assurance to all by raising Him from the dead. Now the first thing that I want you to see, this is sort of the overarching theme, 
is that there is a chronological distinction made in this passage. We have the times of ignorance, but now. See, there's a, the distinction's made. Times of ignorance, but now. And the times of ignorance are directly related to the Athenians' religious quest through idolatry. What could be known about God was plain to them, but they had suppressed it and had fashioned their own images and gods. To affirm the true God who created them and their world would necessarily imply that they themselves could not dream up or fashion an image of such a God. It would demand that they bow to Him rather than creating a God which served their lusts. But in the divine providence, God had not given the direct revelation of Himself to the Greeks or any other nation that He had given to Israel. A true saving knowledge of God requires an interposing act of God. It requires that He intervene and shine the light upon our darkness. This He had not done amongst the nations of the world as He had done in and amongst the nation of Israel. Again, what can be known about God was clear, but remember what we've learned in our confession many times, that this natural revelation was not sufficient for salvation. In other words, in the language of the text, he had overlooked the times of ignorance. Now that doesn't mean that he just sort of passed it by as if he was ignoring them. What it means is he, he did not actively engage these nations with special revelation. But notice the contrast. But now. There's your time marker. Times of ignorance. But now, He commands all people everywhere to repent. Now what I want you to see here, this, this, the next statement I'm going to make is pretty much the sermon. The chronological distinction is also defined by a revelatory distinction. Times of ignorance, God did not send special revelation. But now, God commands. See, there's a revelation there, a speaking of God. God commands all people everywhere to repent. The changing of the times is directly related to a change or an alteration in the scope of revelation. Parallel to Hebrews 1 1 to 3. Long ago at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days He's spoken to us by His Son. It's a division of time, long ago, our fathers, but it's also a division of revelation, spoke by the prophets, spoke by His Son. Chronological and revelatory distinction. Now, how could these Athenians know that the times of ignorance were over? How were they supposed to know? Paul... A Jewish convert to Christ is standing in the Areopagus in Athens and he says, repent. In other words, he's given them, he is delivering to them a revelation of the one true God. What you worship as unknown, I'm here to tell you. Prior to this, God was you were allowed to just keep on worshiping the so-called unknown God. But now, that's changed. No excuses. I'm here to preach that God to you. It's a chronological distinction, but it's also a revelatory distinction. And we could ask, how does God command all people everywhere to to repent? Through the ministry of the Spirit of Christ in the gospel church through gospel preachers. That's the first text. Distinction in time, what was happening prior to what's happening now, and a revelatory distinction. The second text, before we move to this in Acts chapter 14, you can turn there. Before we look at it, I want to come back to the main subject of Revelation 20. Because remember, what we're talking about is the binding of Satan, what Satan was doing prior to the, the binding, what he's doing now uh, after Christ's coming. And so far, all we've seen, that men were just living in ignorance. And, and it almost sounds like they were passive. Ignorance. Times of ignorance. It sounds like, well, they were just harmless in their understanding. It doesn't really give us images of satanic deception. Satan was deceiving the nations. It sounds like, you know what? They just didn't know. 
Nobody told them. And so they just didn't know. The next text in, in Acts chapter 14 is a very similar passage, but it's worded a little bit differently. In Acts 14, Paul's speaking to men in Lystra. They have just observed a miracle, and in response to this miracle, they begin to worship Paul and Barnabas as if they were Greek gods. Very, very similar to what was happening in Athens, same, same sort of background religion. And so Paul addresses them, very similar to the way he did in the Areopagus, He wants them to see that their worship is greatly misplaced, that the true God is not like their false gods. And in the process of this, he says in Acts 14, 16, in past generations, He, that's God, allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. Now hopefully you can see just on the surface the similarities between that statement and what he said in in Acts 17. Let's make a comparison. Acts 17, times of ignorance versus but now. Acts 14, past generations. Now what does that imply except he's making a contrast with the present time. There's then and there's now. In Acts chapter 17 it says that God overlooked these times of ignorance. In Acts 14, in past generations, God allowed the nations to walk in their own ways. In other words, God did not intervene with special revelation. He was allowing it to go on. In Acts 17, it's times of ignorance. Sounds like, well, just nobody told them. But in Acts 14, it says that they were allowed to walk in their own ways. In other words, the ignorance of Acts 17 is not a passive, harmless, unknowing. It is the willfully blind rebellion of men who jerk their arms away from what can be known about God through the things that have been created and a, a, a suppressing of the truth of God in His own unrighteousness and saying, I will walk in my own ways. In describing that, this same idea on a more personal scale, Paul says to the Ephesian Christians in Ephesians 4, Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the nations do. Now the ESV translates that Gentiles. All day today I'm going to, translate all, I'm going to say all of these words using the English term nations. And I'll explain that in a minute. That you must no longer walk as the nations do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. Again, ah, oh, nobody told them what we keep reading. Ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality. You say, well, Romans 1 says God gave them up. Well, Ephesians 4 says they gave themselves up. Which is it? It's both. Greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Their ignorance was due to their hardness of heart, and them there again was the nations, those without the saving revelation of God. Now the Ephesians were not Jews. This is the irony. He's writing to a church of Gentiles, and he says, you're not supposed to walk as the Gentiles do, the nations. Why? Because that term in the New Testament in places like this is not talking simply about ethnicity. It's talking about those outside of the pale of the special revelation of God. Away from the saving revelation of God. They're Gentiles or nations, ethne. You're not that anymore. So what he's saying. So when Paul says in Acts 14, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. He wasn't talking about the Jewish nation. He was talking about those outside of that nation. Those without saving revelation of God. Coming back to Acts 17. This great alteration of history and revelation, remember, also had a third hinge. It was a, there was a chronological hinge, a moment in time. There was a revelatory hinge, times of ignorance, but now God commands. But there was also an ethnic application. All people. He's going to judge the world. So you see, the apostle makes clear that the former times of ignorance and alienation from God are not to be understood as a neutral or benign lack of understanding. They just didn't know. No, that's not true. It was a gross hostility that they had because they suppressed what they did have in their unrighteousness. It was their hardness of heart. 
So we see in these two passages a Holy Spirit inspired or yeah, inspired interpretation of history broken up into two primary periods. Times of ignorance, but now. And the door of history swings on three hinges. It's a chronological hinge, a revelatory hinge, and an ethnic hinge, an ethnic application. These two periods are characterized just like the stations of life for one of God's people. Namely, the time prior to the knowledge of truth and the time after the knowledge of the truth. For both the individual and the world, the distinguishing factor is the Holy Spirit-empowered effectual revelation of the work of Christ. In the individual and in the world, what, what causes the change? It is the coming of the preached gospel. Before, no effectual preaching. Effectual preaching comes and the change happens. It's the same with the world as it is in the individual. Now, how does this all relate to the binding of Satan and the war upon Christ and His people? Well, the hostility toward God is always manifested in a hostility towards the ways of God and the people of God. John 3.20 says, Everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. Light exposes man's evil. Matthew 5.14, You are the light of the world. That's us. We're the light. So the light comes on. Men don't like that light because it exposes their evil. Ephesians 5, 7-11, Therefore do not be partakers with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light. Walk as children of light. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. You see, the righteousness of the people of God exposes the evil of the lost world. And they hate having their lost works exposed. And so, 1 Peter 4, with respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in this same flood of debauchery and they malign Malign you. That is, in other words, those who are in ignorance due to their hardness of heart, they will retaliate when they are met with the light that shines forth from the righteousness of the people of God. But they retaliate not immediately against the God whom they cannot see, but against the people of God whom they can see. In other words, wicked men, sons of disobedience, following the prince of the power of the air, are content in their willful blindness... They are ripe for deception, and the ease of deception makes them apt tools in the hands of Satan as he uses their carnal hostility toward the people of God. He uses them to persecute the people of God. Now with an entire world lying in darkness, lying in ignorance, except for one small nation, the enemy of our souls had an entire world of darkened, deceived, and hostile soldiers that he could use to wage war against the church. That would have been the times of ignorance. As long as the nations remained in darkness with no light, that scheme of the devil seemed to work well. As a matter of fact, there was one instance where this scheme worked so well that the, sat that the devil, Satan, ascended so close to the mount of God that the kings of the earth were actually used to crucify the Lord of glory. They, they, they raged and they assembled themselves against the Lord's anointed. But what do we know? That that supposed victory of the devil actually served in the hidden purposes of God to achieve His victory at the cross. God used that hostility of men against the devil. He defeated him with his own scheme, with his own army. What did Christ preach? Mark 1, Jesus proclaimed the gospel of God saying, The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. In other words, the time has come. The moment we've all been waiting for is here. It's fulfilled. And then what did He say? Repent. This is the time marker. What did Christ say when He approached the cross in fulfillment of Acts chapter 2 in the raging of the nations? When I'm lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to Myself. What, what He's saying there is the light is about to be illumined upon the whole world. What they thought was a victory. We will crucify this man. What they were literally doing was taking the light of the world and lifting it up higher so that it would shine amongst the nations. 
so that no more would a candle flicker in this tiny nation of Israel, but candlesticks would be carried to the ends of the earth. You see, this is the binding of Satan. It's not that he's tied up, that he's incapable of action. The binding of Satan is that the light has come on. The world that sat in darkness awaiting its Savior has been lit up. And to this very day, even though there are still some darkened corners of the world, the sevenfold Spirit of Christ has gone forth into the nations through the preaching of the Gospel. The rider on the white horse has been riding forth, conquering and to conquer. As the light comes, souls are saved and they begin to burn bright. What does that do? That exposes evil. And as they burn brighter and brighter, the hostility of the world burns hotter and hotter. Persecution follows because men hate the light. This is the division of biblical history, of human history from a biblical perspective. This is how we ought to think about the division of history. Human history and redemptive history is the history of revelation. It's the history of how God has made Himself known. And it's divided up, just like we calculate with our own calendars. Not by the times of Israel. Not the Israeli or the the Jewish age and the post-Jewish age. That's not how we divide up history. We divide up history as before Christ came and Anno Domini, the year of our Lord. He's ascended. He's king. We live under the kingship of Christ. The dispensationalist view focuses too much on Israel and calls the church age the great parenthesis. I would actually rather call God's working with the Jews the great parenthesis. That was the time in which the nations were being populated. The fields of the earth were being made large for the harvest of Christ. Israel was chosen as a special biological vehicle to bring the Christ into the world. They were used to foreshadow the gospel church of the present time. But to divide up history according to the existence of the nation of Israel is unbiblical, ahistorical, and I would say demeaning to Christ. Now to prove that, now let's go to the Old Testament and the New Testament. I'm just going to read off... Lots of texts. And I want, to, I want you to see, especially from the Old Testament, that the horizon that the Old Testament prophets looked to, the horizon of redemptive history was, or what light on that horizon, was the salvation of those outside of the pale of Israel. Now, I don't say that to reduce or take away from Christ, because I would see the salvation of the nations as the, the stream which flows from the work of Christ. They were looking forward to that. Just like, very much like Moses said, would that all God's people prophesied. What they wanted was bigger, broader, expand, expansion. And that's what they saw on the horizon. In Acts 17, in that same sermon, Paul says that God made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. That one man was Adam. And every nation, pan, ethnos, refers to every people group. Not every political or geopolitical sphere, but every diverse grouping of mankind. Even within a specific geopolitical sphere, you might have multiple people groups, multiple nations in the biblical language dwelling there. In the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the word was translated ethne. The Hebrew word is goi or goin. And it might be translated in your Bible as nations or people. But listen to the litany of texts where God promises a salvation among the Goyim, the nations, outside of Israel. Now first, a few that precede Israel. Genesis 9. Prior to the birth of Israel, God says in Genesis 9, 26 and 27, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. Now the word goyim isn't used here, but here is where we have this setting up, this establishing of the distinction. You've got Shem, who was the direct line leading to Abraham. And you've got the other sons, Ham and Japheth, the other sons of Noah. They would be the line from which all of the other nations come. 
Genesis 10.32, These are the clans of the sons of Noah, according to their genealogies and their nations. From these the nations spread abroad on the earth after the flood. Then when you come to Genesis 17, we meet a man named Abraham. Genesis 17.4, God says, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. Genesis 22.18, In your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. We come to the Psalms, Psalm twenty two twenty seven. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. Psalm 67, 2. That your way may be known on earth, your saving power among all nations. Isaiah 2, 2. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills, and all the nations shall flow to it. Isaiah 11.10, In that day the root of Jesse, this is Christ, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. Isaiah 25.7, He will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. You see, there's the language of this darkness, this blindness, this veil. Christ will come and He will swallow up the veil. Now that sounds like He he takes something away, but what does He do? He comes to give something. He comes with the light. It is the light that swallows up the darkness. Isaiah 49.6, I will make you as a light for the nations, and my salvation, or that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Haggai 2.7, I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in and I will fill this house with glory. Zechariah 2.11, many nations shall join themselves to the Lord in that day and shall be my people. Zechariah 14.16, then everyone who survives of all the nations that have come up against Jerusalem shall go up year after year to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the Feast of Booths. Now, if that's all we had, and this is just a limited sampling of the bigger limited sampling that I made reference of. This this litters the Old Testament Scriptures. But if that was all we had, then we would expect that following the sending of Christ into the world, at some point in history, a drastic change would take place, not only in the scope of the revelation of God, but in the receptivity of it. In other words, what it sounds like is that the nations of the world as entities will become Christian. That the pervading character of the world will be Christian. All nations. That's what it sounds like. Well, the problem with that is that for every text that implies the conversion of the nations in the future there are texts which imply the punishment of the nations. Psalm 2, 8 and 9, Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. What's He going to do with them? You shall break them with a rod of iron, and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. My king is on Zion's hill. The nations are for judgment. Psalm 9, 5, You have rebuked the nations. You have made the wicked perish. You have blotted out their name forever and ever. Psalm 9, 19, Arise, O Lord, let not man prevail. Let the nations be judged before you. Psalm 59, 5, You, Lord God of hosts, are God of Israel. Rouse yourself to punish all the nations. Spare none of those who treacherously plot evil. So we see from a, a quick Old Testament survey that God's intention has been from the beginning to send the light of salvation to the ends of the earth, to the nations of the world. God never had in mind that He would leave the nations in darkness. He always had in mind that He would save the nations from the very beginning. But at the same time, God made it clear that the nations will be judged and that they will be smashed with Christ's iron rod like a clay pot. That's also there. So which is it? Will the nations be saved and Christianized or will Christ smash them with a rod of iron? 
If we only had the Old Testament, we might struggle here, as did the Jews of Christ's day. And that's why the New Testament is so important. Because it's in the New Testament that we can see how the apostles of Christ inerrantly, infallibly, and sufficiently interpreted these scriptures and explained them. Now, as we move to the New Testament, I want to begin with the Gospels. And again, every place where the Greek term ethne is used, I'm going to say nations. You might have Gentiles, you might have peoples, you might have heathen. I'm going to say nations. And I'm doing this purposefully to keep the continuity between the New Testament and the Old Testament text that we just saw. Because remember, the the apostles were by and large using the Greek translation of the Old Testament. The people to whom they wrote were by and large Greek-speaking and reading people. So this is the way the original audience would have heard these types of texts, even though in in English we, we use various terms. In the Gospels, Christ prepared His disciples for ministry by saying in Matthew 10, 18, You will be dragged before governors and kings for My sake to bear witness before them and the nations. Matthew 12, 21, Matthew here quotes from Isaiah concerning Christ and it says, says, in His name the nations will hope. Now that sounds positive, that's good. But then Christ tells His disciples in Matthew 24, 9, you will be hated by all nations for My name's sake. Well, that doesn't sound good at all. As Christ describes the church age in Matthew 24, 14. It says, This gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Matthew 28, 19, He gives the commission, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Matthew thir- Mark 13, 10, The gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And Christ summarizes the prophetic word in Luke 24, 46-47. Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance, remember that God commands all people everywhere to repent, that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in His name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. That's the way the language was used again In the Gospels. Now we get to the book of Acts, we get a little bit more insight because we could read the Gospels and and still be a little bit fuzzy about how this is actually going to work out in history. Remember, the Gospels were written under the period that we would call the Old Testament prior to Christ or or the events they record. They were written after. But the events they record would be considered Old Testament events up until the death of Christ. But in the book of Acts, we see exactly how all of this was interpreted by the apostles themselves. In Acts 3.24, Peter said that all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaimed these days. Speaking of his lifetime, the days that we're living in, the, the, the prophets, they were speaking of now. First century of the world. In other words, the time following Christ's ascension and the sending of the Holy Spirit was the days which were long prophesied by the prophets. God speaking to Ananias concerning the Apostle Paul in Acts 9.15 says, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the nations and kings and the children of Israel. As Peter preaches to Cornelius, a Roman soldier, he says in Acts 10.34 and 35, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality. But in every nation, anyone who fears Him and does what is right is acceptable to Him. Acts 10.45, The believers from among the circumcised, that's Jews, who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the nations. Acts 11.1, the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the nations had also received the Word of God. Acts 11.18, when they heard these things, they fell silent. And they glorified God, saying, Then to the nations also God has granted repentance that leads to life. God now commands all people everywhere to repent. In Acts chapter 15, we have the Jerusalem Council, which is an extremely important scene. 
Acts 15.12, the, the assembly fell silent. And they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the nations. Acts 15.14, Simeon has related how God first visited the nations to take from them a people for His name. In Acts 15, 17 to 19, James now, quoting from the book of Amos, as he describes the conversion of non-Jews, he says that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord. And all the nations who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. And then James interprets, Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the nations who turn to God. This was the plan from the beginning. As Paul preached to Agrippa in Acts 26, included in his gospel message, he references or points out that the Christ must suffer, verse 23, and that being the first to rise from the dead, He would proclaim light to our people and to the nations. Now notice the distinction there. Our people, Jews, and to the nations. That's the, the, the ethnic application hinge. What's the revelatory hinge? He would proclaim light to the nations. What's the chronological, hymn, uh, chronological uh, hinge? Christ must suffer and rise from the dead. It's that event, that revelation, that ethnic distinction upon which all of history turns. In the book of Romans, Paul makes that distinction clear. Is God the God of the Jews only? Is He not God of the nations also? Yes, of the nations also. Romans 9.24, Us whom He has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the nations. Us, Christians, whom God has called from the Jews and from the nations. Ek, out of. Out of the Jewish nation and out of all of the other nations. God has taken a select number from both sides of that ethnic distinction and is taking. Romans 15, 18, I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the nations to obedience. Romans 16, 25 and 26, the mystery that was kept for long ages but has now been disclosed through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations. Revelatory hinge. It's been made known according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith. Ephesians 3.6, the mystery is that the nations are fellow heirs, members of the same body, partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the what? The gospel, the revelatory hinge. 1 Timothy 3.16, great indeed we confess is the mystery of godliness. He, God, was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. That's the first century. That's the way that they interpreted their times. And we could go on and on. The point that I want you to see is that the apostles, interpreting their Old Testament Scriptures with the inspiration of the author himself, saw that the promises of salvation to the nations was not to be taken as a blanket expectation of the Christianization of the world, but saw them fulfilled in their own day as people out of the nations other than Israel were being saved. That's the way they interpreted it. The nations, the goy or the goyim, or the ethne, the ethnos in the Old Testament or in the New Testament, is not a reference to governments, it's not a reference to top-down authority structures. It's not a reference to geopolitical entities. It's not a reference to the seven hills of dominionism. The nations is a reference to people who are not of Jewish descent primarily. But if we go all the way back to Genesis 9, those outside of the direct line of Shem, Abraham, Jacob, Christ. That's the nations. It's everybody else. And in the New Testament, we see men and women from these very nations and, and derivative peoples that came, 
that are coming to faith in Jesus Christ through the preaching of the Gospel. And still to this very day, the same thing is happening. It's being fulfilled. The nations are coming. Now, when we get to the Revelation, the picture is summarized again. The Revelation shows us that the nations are enemies of God. Drunk, deceived by Satan. Revelation 13, 7, authority was given to the beast over every tribe and people and language and nation. 18, 3, all nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. 18, 23, all nations were deceived by your sorcery. 28, he will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth. But we also have the nations ruled by God and judged. Revelation 12.5, she gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. That's judgment. You see the rod of iron, that's judgment. Revelation 19.15, from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. But we also have the nations redeemed, glorified, worshiping God. Revelation 7.9, after this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb. 15.4, all nations will come and worship you. 21.24, its light, that is God, by its light will the nations walk. Revelation 21.26, the glory and honor of the nations will be brought into the new Jerusalem. Revelation 22.2, the leaves of the tree of life are for the healing of the nations. Nations are... Wicked, nations are judged, nations are redeemed. Again, how can that word nations be understood in all of these ways? The answer is because Christ the Lamb, chapter 5 verse 9, has ransomed people for God from, out of, every nation and language and people, or every tribe and language and people and nation. Just as some will be judged and condemned, others will be saved and glorified. He finished the objective redemption in His death and resurrection. He's now applying it subjectively to the nations in the present age. We have to remember that the victory of the gospel refers to the salvation of souls. The work of the gospel is a soul work. Individuals have souls. And thus the application of the work of the gospel is to the souls of individuals. A nation doesn't have a soul that can be regenerated. A culture does not have a soul that can be regenerated. It's individual souls that must themselves hear the gospel and God must deal with them as an individual. And if that happens to one person outside of the nation of Israel, that's nations. That's a fulfillment of what the Scriptures spoke of. Why? Because prior to that, God had not yet intervened in those nations in the times of ignorance. This is the binding of Satan. History being divided up between the times of ignorance and the times of gospel preaching to the nations, Satan is now unable to do what he once did. Because the gospel goes forward in power unlike it had ever gone before. And so again we see that Christ and His work is the hinge upon which history turns. The times of ignorance, God overlooked. But now, God commands. Now, God has sent His Son. And through the sending forth of the Spirit of Christ to give gifts to men, especially for the building of the church, the gospel advances. At the same time, the more the light goes forth, the more exposure of darkness takes place, the more exposure takes place, the more hatred boils up in the wicked. The character of the gospel age is one of constant light and then exposure and then hatred and then persecution and then another flame, light and application and exposure and hatred and another flame pops up light and exposure and hatred and persecution all throughout the history of the world or the church and all over the world. And that will continue to happen back to Revelation 20 until the thousand years were ended. After that, He must be released for a little while. 
There will come a time when the devil is allowed to go forth and to do what he's always done in a way that is, for a short time, it seems very effective. He will once again ascend Har Magadon. God Himself will draw the nations up the Mount of Assembly. The nations will rage just as they did in the days of Christ. They will render what appears to be a decisive blow just as in the days of Christ. But in that, just as in the death of Christ, the victory is won. He comes in that hour and renders the final death blow to Satan and all of his followers. The deceiving of the nations, or in deceiving the nations, this is what I love. In deceiving the nations, the devil has only expanded the field of harvest for the Lord's laborers. All he's done is is made a bigger garden. That means more work. That means more weed pulling. That means more sowing. But it also means more reward for the lamb. What he meant for evil, what the devil meant for evil, God meant for good, that many peoples should be saved. The times of ignorance served to populate the globe with the goyim. And now we've been given some role to play in the mission of discipling the goyim, discipling the nations, even as we ourselves are the fruit of others in that they obeyed the call. Somebody obeyed the call to preach the gospel in the line that brought the gospel to you. Somebody. And now we have a role to play. We do that same thing. We carry on the work. So just briefly, to make some application of this, what part are you actively playing in this drama of redemption? What part are you playing? I could say, here's the application. One point of application. Keep in mind and remember that now you know how to interpret Revelation 20 verses 1 to 3. But that would be foolish. The real application would be, if you believe that's the proper interpretation, then you agree that Satan is bound, which means you agree that the gospel is to go forward to the nations, which means you agree that you have a role to play in the gospel going forth to the nations. Therefore, what is your role? If you believe this interpretation, you are saying, then sign me up. What what role do you play? What will you do today or tomorrow, this week or this month to act as a cog in the machine of the Great Commission Church? What are you going to do? You've got a role to play. Where do you fit? Christ has won the victory. Satan is bound. The Spirit's been given. Lampstands are being set up all over the world and taken down. If you've been born again, you've been given specific gifts to serve in the edification of this assembly. If you're a Christian, what are they? How do you use them? What are you going to do? What part do you play? At the same time, you're also a citizen of this earthly society. And so we could be be, be tempted to believe, well, the the only time this actually comes into play is on Sunday between the hours of, say, 9.30 and 9.30. But that's not true, because that's a brief period of time compared to all of our other time in the world. We're, We're citizens of an earthly society. So you might say, well, I mean, I don't know, I just go to work. Well, I don't know. I, I, I just, you know, fold socks and wash dishes and change diapers. I, that's all that I do. You have to remember what Christ said. The kingdom is in you. It's in you. So that as you carry out everyday tasks, the Spirit of God is still working in you and through you in those things so that the kingdom is advanced as you do something that you might consider to be mundane. That diaper is not going to be in the, in the state of glory. It's not going to be there. But your heart attitude as you change that diaper will. It will it's working a weight of glory. The, the, whatever you lay your hands on in labor, the, the dirt that we till for our gardens, and the, the things that we 
if the Lord grants the things that we pick from those gardens, they're, they're not going to last into eternity. You're going to eat them, you're going to consume them, your body is going to use them. But the, your, your heart and your soul, as you till, as you plant, as you say, Lord, I've done everything I can do. I cannot make a single shoot come out of the ground. You must give the growth. And you wait. And then you pick. And then you eat. And you say, Lord, we thank you this day for the food that you've provided. And you teach your children, look what we just did. We depended upon the Lord. He gave the growth. Now He's going to nourish our bodies so that we can serve Him. In all of that, as the Spirit works in you, in normal things, the kingdom is advancing. So don't think, well, it's just on Sunday, and then after that, well, I just go to work. No. The kingdom is in you. And very often it comes in ways that cannot be observed. Other people are not going to know what's happening. You might not even realize it's happening in the hour. So what role do you play? May we be found diligently working when He returns. Let's pray.